It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. Welcome to Perino on Politics, where we give you a 30,000-foot view of everything you need to know this week in politics. I'm Dana Perino, and joining me this week to discuss all of this and more is my friend, Jessica Anderson. Jessica is the founding president of the Sentinel Action Fund. She previously served as associate director of intergovernmental affairs and strategic initiatives at the Office of Management and Budget also known as OMB, that was under President Trump, and she was formerly the executive director of Heritage Action. So she knows her way around politics, D.C. She's also a young mom and appears on America's Newsroom, which we enjoy having her there. Jessica, welcome. Thanks, Dana. Great to be here today. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's talk presidential politics first, but Caroline's going to bring me a coffee in case you caught that on air. So this week we have the Nevada caucus and primary, but I just read a Politico headline that said Nevada doesn't matter. So I think basically it's because the Nevada Republican Party was like, here, one person's in a caucus, one person's in a primary. It doesn't necessarily matter because it's a small number of delegates. Are you even paying any attention to Nevada this week? Ish, which isn't a great answer, but the truth is, is that Nevada is trying to wiggle its way into being one of the top four states. You know, this is a result of the state legislature's moves to move them further up in the in the caucus timeline. And so I think everybody is like, oh, wait, Nevada's now. It's not after South Carolina like normal. So there's that. Um, but I also think Nikki has not really done anything to focus uh, on the state. And so her eyes have turned to South Carolina. Trump's mm-hmm. talking about. South Carolina. So um, I think Trump wins it single-handedly without much competition. And now we just focus on the Palmetto State. Tell you what, Nikki Haley has raised a lot of money uh, in January. Uh, Her New Hampshire and Iowa wins were apparently, you know, pretty good in in the fundraising department. And one of the things that a lot of people have pointed out, myself included, as if I sounded like I really knew what I was talking about, is that often campaigns end because they run out of money. And a lot of people are like, why don't you just drop out now? You're obviously not going to win. But she has money. She was on SNL for a brief appearance over the weekend. And so she's not going to drop out. I do think she stays in through Super Tuesday. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think she stays in. It's not just that she has money. It's the type of money. Right. So one of the things she announced over the weekend was that over 60 percent of the donations that came in in January were grassroots small dollar. So that's something that that historically Trump has dominated the low dollar, the grassroots dollar. um, And Nikki's racking those in as well. And so I think she's going to use that as an example that she's got general voter support, support amongst the grassroots Mm -hmm. and can go toe to toe with Trump in in South Carolina. One thing I noticed uh, as I listened to uh, this one podcast, called Start Here. It's an ABC News product. When they were talking about President Biden's primary win on Saturday in South Carolina, the reporter, she said that one of the things she paid attention to was how very low the turnout was, Mm. even though the Democrats spent a lot of money to try to get turnout pumped up in South Carolina. Do you think turnout was low because it was kind of a foregone conclusion that Biden would win? Or... Does that signify some sort of lack of enthusiasm that we've been seeing in the polls more broadly about Biden's reelection? 
I think there's something more deeper going on with the Biden campaign. I mean, the the truth is he doesn't have the enthusiasm from the far left, right? They wanted him to be more liberal than he is. The moderates are disappointed that he hasn't followed through on any of his commitments. And you look poll after poll and he's upside down on the border, on spending, on the economy, on crime. Um, And there's just mental acuity or mental mental competency. I think that's how they put it. Yeah, that's right. And actually, that came up in almost all the polls that came out over over this last week was just competence. Like, they're actually starting on the Democratic side to poll whether or not you believe Biden is competent. His mm-hmm. numbers are down. Kamala Harris's are way worse. And so I think there's an element of just disarray amongst the Democratic base right now. And that is just going to bleed lower turnout levels. Um, they're going to have to do a lot, I think, to get their people to turn out. I would be on the lookout for a lot of these um, kind of gimmicks. We saw this with the free college gimmick um, from Governor Whitmere in Michigan. I think we're going to see more of Hollywood surrogates come out to his defense. Um, it's not going to be a traditional stump speech campaign for him. One, because he's very old. Uh, he can't even, you know, carry kind of that normal schedule that you would see from a campaign cadence standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's going to have a lot of surrogates in front of him, talking about him, trying to reinforce him. And there's just not a lot of enthusiasm. You saw that last week with Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, basically being tapped as the guy that's going to go out and do all these interviews for him. But mm-hmm. he's not the commander in chief. And one of the things that a commander in chief is op- given the opportunity to do every year is to do an interview um right before the Super Bowl. Now, this is a huge opportunity. The Super Bowl could get up to 100 or maybe 125 million people watching it. That interview, let's say before people tune in, let's say it's 55 million people even. That's the biggest audience a president could possibly have. President Trump didn't do every single year. I can't I think he maybe missed two of them. Biden didn't do it last year. <clears throat> I thought that was partly because it, it was a Fox interview even though I think like, let's say it was Shannon Bream. Like, you can't do an interview with Shannon Bream. Give me a break. Right. Um, it might be tough, but, you know, she's kind and give you a chance to talk. I'm actually okay with this tradition going away because I think people do want to focus on the football game. But I also believe that his campaign team knows that the risk of mm. failing in front of 55 million people or more for an interview like that it wasn't worth it for them that's what i that's why i think they're taking a knee so to speak that's a sports term in case anybody didn't know <laughs> yeah i i think that's right dana but i also think you really can't replace the number of eyeballs that you would get from a Super Bowl, right? This is one of the most high-profile sporting events. It's gonna, it's already politicized. Like, I completely hear you. I wish it wasn't, but as soon as you had um, the entire movement of not standing for the pledge and yeah. you had BLM, and now you have Travis Kelsey and mm-hmm. and Taylor Swift and all of that pop culture now thrown in the midst, like football is no longer football for football's sake, right? When my ten-year-old watches it, um, he's seen everything else. We have to talk about everything else, not just the plays and so I think the NFL has done a pretty good job of getting that behind them though and I don't think the NFL brought the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift craziness on itself even though they're dealing with the aftermath they're well they're embracing it right yeah sure why numbers are they want more young girls to buy merch (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're appreciating the extra eyeballs, right? I mean, the Grammys, I watched only a little bit of it last night. I don't know if you, how much of it you caught. And it was actually really funny when they were like, okay, in so much as at the NFL 
pans to Taylor, we're going to pan to football players in the Grammy studio, you know, in the Grammy's audience, live audience tonight. And then they did that like two or three times to former football players that were at the Grammys. So I think everyone just everyone is just trying to build on the last like big moment because they're just trying to drive eyeballs which as we know drives advertisers which drives the bucks for the execs one thing ben shapiro said last week on his podcast that i really appreciated was how you cannot make yourself famous because you get an endorsement of a famous person And so it's like, stop trying so hard. Like for the Biden administration, putting it out there that they're really hoping to get the Taylor endorsement, which they probably will. I mean, she endorsed him in 2020. She had cookies and everything. Um, But it's probably not going to matter. What does certainly matter is the border. And last week you had these several migrants beat up a couple of cops in Times Square, NYPD officers. They were then, several of them left town after they were not required to stay, didn't even have to post bail. And then you had another of them walking out of court, give the double bird to America on his way out. What's interesting is that, Jessica, you never know what story might be the one that the media latches onto more broadly. But this one, I feel like, is doing that. It's almost the perfect metaphor for the Biden administration's policies on the border I want you to talk about that and about the Senate bill that has just come out. I know that you cover the Senate quite extensively. You know it well. The Speaker of the House says it is dead on arrival, so I guess it might not go anywhere, but it was an attempt at least to try to put something on paper to see what we could agree on. Mm-hmm. Well, first and first and foremost, I think every single day we have a new depressing um, and just horrific story coming across the border. And when we've been saying for two plus years now that it's not just a national security crisis, it's a humanitarian one, you actually saw that with the visuals coming out of New York this last week. Mm -hmm. And these images are powerful and they were so powerful that many people can't look away. And they Mm -hmm. shouldn't because this is what's happening to our cities. And it's the result of these broken and failed policies, not just at the border, but in the interior too. New York's a sanctuary city. They've said, send people here. Well, they don't have have the infrastructure and they have a DA that's refusing to prosecute crime. And so when you don't have deterrence, like you don't have in many of our major blue cities across the country, you're just going to have a cycle of repetitive crimes and a complete lack of um, just support or even um, respect for the law. And it's it's just it was just so blatant with how he gave the bird Mm. to the cameras. It was just so like. It was just in your face. It was like what you expect from like a, a teenager. And, you know, you look at his age, he's a kid. I mean, he's not really a kid, but he's, he's young. It's not yeah. like, yeah, like these are, this is young. Um, so I think that's one. I, I truly hope for the sake of our country that moments like this actually wake the left up, right? The border is an issue that's affecting every single American, regardless of partisanship. And it's so bad now. Um, and it's on nearly every news site. Um, and you mm-hmm. see it and you and you feel it um, and you're concerned. So I, I yeah. am hopeful that there's a turning point. It's interesting to I, don't, I haven't read the full text of the bill, but I read a lot of the background documents on it. What I think is interesting is I know that a lot of people that would consider themselves conservatives on the right are saying this bill's terrible. It's not good enough. Um, what I think is interesting is how much the Republican negotiator was able to get Senate Democrats to agree to. I mean, some of the things are just pretty amazing that one, that they weren't even in law already. For example, you could be immediately denied asylum if you have a criminal record. 
in this new bill. Do you know that that, that's not law now, which is so bizarre? The progressive left is pretty upset about the bill as well. Again, I don't know if it goes anywhere, but we will pay attention to it as it continues um, to go on. And also, the Speaker of the House was fairly smart, I think, strategically in peeling off support for this bill, but still supporting our ally Israel and doing Mm -hmm. a standalone bill there. So we'll pay attention to all of that as it moves along. And we'll be right back with another segment. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. All right, Jessica, we are back with Perino on Politics. Jessica Anderson is my guest. One of the things that happened this week, in addition to the NBC poll that came out, is that you started to see perhaps some improvement in the economy on the number. So like on the jobs number, for example, looks pretty good, right? Still inflation is up. Wages starting to go up. Spending, government spending still very high. And I wonder what you think about this idea that the Biden administration thinks it just might be able to win re-election because of the improving economy. What do you hear either on the policy front or even in your own circles? Well, what I hear from grassroots Americans, which is primarily who I talk to across the country, it's not going to be enough. So the reality is, even if the numbers start to have movement this month, February, nine, 10 months before the election, it's not going to actually, we're not going to feel it, right? And voters make decisions based upon what they feel. They feel the price at the pump. They feel the cost of groceries. They know the tuition for their kids' schools. And that is going to take time for any changes to be long-term and for any of those changes to be durable. I mean, I don't know that we're actually fully feeling the economic impact of the IRA, the um, the uh, Biden's tax bill that he passed and that got through Congress just last year. That spending balooza isn't actually fully realized in our pocketbooks yet. So at some point, all of this just doubles down for the American consumer mm-hmm. and we're not able to actually catch our breath. And I think that's going to be the story, this cycle. It's going to be immigration and crime and it's going to be the economy. And those two issues, Biden cannot run a positive message on because his hand was directly involved in Mm -hmm. in those two issues going so poorly the last three years. What's interesting is also because housing costs are not coming down. Interest rates are not coming down, um, at least right now. And the stock market might be up, but for a younger couple looking to figure out a way to buy a home for their own shelter, they don't want to spend 50% of their income on shelter. And then you add the high cost of home insurance and car insurance, both of those going up quite dramatically, partly because of crime on the car scene, like carjackings, for example, mm-hmm. in the nation's capital are outrageous. And I pay a lot of attention to this issue of the high cost of childcare. I know you're a young mom, and so just having your youthful outlook on all of this, what do you make of how people think of the economy when you take into, the, into account those three big issues? Well, I, I think one thing that's really, really important here to remember is that moms are making the same decisions for childcare as they're making for groceries, as they're making for sports camps, as they're making for all their extracurricular activities for their family. And so, you know, there was always this common thought in the political sphere 30 years ago that you could kind of put mom's issues in a bucket and it was just education. Well, now they're making the financial decisions in their household because they're paying the bills and they're making sure that their kids are being well 
well cared for. And there's a cost for that. Um, also, access to child care continues to not be improved. And so you're having to not only look at the cost, but you're looking at what is the level of care? What is the level of schooling? And now you add in the woke kind of trend lines that we're seeing, even in things as young as kindergarten, where parents are like, I'm not going to send my kid to a public school where they're going to get indoctrinated um, and have sexualized material in front of them at the age of six. So there's a lot of, um, I think, dynamic and compounding issues that has made the voter so much more aware this cycle, so much more um, educated, therefore, because Mm -hmm. they've had to go and figure this stuff out on their own. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think the Biden impact, it's not just going to be top of the ticket. It's going to trickle down to those Senate seats. The House seats are a jump ball and these local races like it's all mattering so, so much more. Are Republicans putting forward any policies or messaging that speaks to those younger people, young parents? Yes, I think so. I think you've seen the right come out and talk about how you don't want to start the habitual welfare system over and over and over again, right? You don't want someone that's 21 going on welfare right away. Let's encourage them to work, have wraparound care. If they're a young single mom, if the dad's out of the picture and they chose life, you know, you're seeing, I think Republicans do a better job about having more holistic um, and compassionate conversations for um for women, women in particular, but I do think men as well. And I think part of this is just the embrace that the right has had over the working class. And that evolution over the last six years, I think, has actually brought better discussion about welfare reform. It's brought better discussion about pro-life bills and pregnancy resource centers and wraparound care for families. Child care costs are in the middle of that. Um, and I, I like I like it best when the Republicans talk kind of holistically like that, because again, voters don't make these decisions in silos. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I was noticing last week how I know that the left and the Biden administration, Biden campaign intends to run a lot on the issue of abortion. And they might not talk about it all the time, although Kamala Harris is out there a lot, but she doesn't make a lot of big news or headlines on that front. But the way that the messaging against Republicans on abortion is out there in little bits and pieces. It's pretty interesting. I saw it on three different op-eds last week in the Washington Post. Um, There's little bits and pieces here and there, like an ad popped up for something that I was looking up on. It was actually a a yoga video on YouTube (laughs) and it came up and it was about uh, abortion messaging. And so that is um, certainly on their minds. And I think you make a good point that the Republicans do have a way to talk about it if they choose to, but that will be Mm -hmm. a battle point. All right, we will be right back with segment three of Perino on Politics. And welcome back to Perino on Politics. Jessica, you could talk about anything you want here. I like to ask people, what are the smart people I admire, like you, looking at that I might be missing or paying attention to that should be higher up on my radar? So my big thing right now to to focus on is the Senate map. If you look at what is at stake this cycle versus the next cycle, this is really the GOP's opportunity to build out a durable Senate majority. Regardless of what happens with the presidency and regardless of the jump ball in the House, we know we need a GOP majority in the Senate because that is going to be the insurance policy 
for America when it comes to cabinet positions, nominations, potentially another Supreme Court fight in the next four four years. And so I think you're going to see a lot of focus on the pickup opportunities. Now, Manchin Mm -hmm. made it an even game, right? If everything goes well. So this is 30,000 foot level. Let's let's take it back up. And I mean. I, I know you mean when you say Joe Manchin, but uh, just so that everybody knows out there that are listening that so Joe Manchin is the Democratic senator from West Virginia, was popular in West Virginia as governor, uh, has been in the Senate, is no longer popular there, and he yep. decided not to run again. So West Virginia could be a pickup for the Republicans. And it's almost surely to be a pickup, which would then bring the the GOP versus Democratic majority in the Senate even. So then you start looking deeper into the map and you look at a state like Montana, a state that Trump previously won by 25 points. John Tester, a Democrat in name only, very liberal, voted against a huge guns bill um, against the interests of Montanans. I think he is ripe for the flipping, right? This is a seat that I think Republicans can target. Um, Do you think that the Republicans will have a nasty primary there, though? Potentially. We'll know that in the next three weeks. Um, Right now, you already have Tim Sheehy, who's announced he's raising good money. He's getting out across the state. Matt Rosendale, who's a congressman from Montana, is rumored to jump into the race. He hasn't done it yet. If he does, then that does set up a head-to-head primary that doesn't end until June, which is unfortunate because that's a lot of time to spend money uh, against Republican against Republican when we could be focused exclusively on Mm -hmm. tester. But Mm -hmm. Montana is also a state, Dana, that has a really high turnout rate. So when you look at the kind of big things that the Republican Party needs to get right this this cycle when it comes to ballot harvesting and ballot chasing and the actual election operations, Montana is a good state for it because it's legal to ballot harvest. So all this talk about are we going to do the tactical things that are needed to win? They actually can be tested in a state like Montana. High turnout, the ability to register voters, all those new people that have moved in and then actually do ballot harvesting. So I'm keeping an eye on Montana for those kind of Mm -hmm. tactical operational reasons. And then you look at Ohio, you look at Pennsylvania, Ohio, Sherrod Brown, again, Democrat, huge implications. Um, for Senate been there, banking. But he's been in the Senate forever. Yeah, and like, you know, the truth is not to be disrespectful, like, what has he done? Like, he's not really a, a Democratic senator that people associate with a big policy victory. It's, Ohio's also a state that Trump won by eight points last time. The Democrats know that Sherrod Brown is very unpopular. They're going to run a number of ballot initiatives to try to drive their own turnout out to combat the fact that Trump won it and no one knows who Brown is or what he's done or what he's accomplished. So I'd keep an eye on Ohio. Pennsylvania is an interesting one. That's probably third on my on my radar. Um, it's a state that Trump lost very narrowly to Biden. Um, you have a lot of lessons learned coming out of the McCormick-Oz primary last cycle, which then, as we all know, ushered in Senator Fetterman, who's now like some days acting like a Republican, uh, you know, but he's certainly caucusing and voting with the Democrats. But Pennsylvania, I'd, I'd keep an eye on, too, because I think I think Democrats want to prove that Pennsylvania is a blue state. And I don't think Republicans will let them prove that this cycle. So Dave McCormick is the Republican Senate candidate. He won a unanimous backing of the GOP party there. First time. Which was not the case two years ago um, when he ran against Dr. Oz and Trump ran against Dave McCormick pretty hard back then. What's interesting is how much money the Senate Democratic Fund or whatever that's called. Mm hmm. DS double C is that what it's called? Yeah, D triple C. D triple C. Um, so, how much money they're willing to spend 
to try to go against Dave McCormick. Isn't it something absurd that they've already committed, like $250 million? Yeah, that's what they've announced. And they've already started buying television reservations, <laughs> which is crazy to think about because it's only February. But they're actually starting to buy those television ad spots for the media buys for this fall. They're doing it in Pennsylvania and also in Montana. Mm-hmm. So if you kind of follow the money, you see that the Democrats are most concerned about those two states um, and really trying to go hard for Bob Casey, who's their Democrat, uh, the Senate uh, incumbent there in in the state of Pennsylvania. So the other piece about PA is um, you have to look at the impact that I think energy and oil in particular is going to have. I'm obsessed with the liquefied natural gas ban that the Biden administration put forward. Both Senator Bob Casey and John Fetterman, Democrats in Pennsylvania and Sherrod Brown in Ohio, plus many other Democrats are just completely completely furious with the Biden administration for announcing a ban on liquefied natural gas because it makes no sense for our own energy security and it really doesn't help jobs if you work in the energy industry. Plus, it hurts our allies who want to buy LNG from us and it pushes them into buying energy from bad actors Mm -hmm. like Russia, Iran, China. It doesn't make any sense, except the Biden team apparently loves the TikTok kids who think LNG is bad. Yeah, and I th- I think they're going to express their displeasure, as they already have in the media, but I would be on the lookout for Schumer to throw a show vote to the Senate Democratic floor um, to give a little bit of a relief valve for those senators to say, look, we stood up, we stood up against this because it would hurt our state. Um, but right now they're hamstrung. There's nothing they can do about it, right? It was all done th- via an executive order. And so Biden, I think, um, miscalculated the impact that it would have on these Senate races that he do you think he'll pull it back leaving in um if he gets enough pressure but honestly the the left wing part of the base and the democratic party loved it and they praised him and he's been looking Mm. for bones to throw them and so it's this is why we keep going back to democrats in disarray because they're being pulled on these two very polarizing parts of their party and they're having a little bit of an identity crisis over okay is this the democratic party of the 80s that can Mm. come to the table and figure out an economic bipartisan package yeah, I don't or think is this so. the, the squad's Democratic <laughs> right. Party? Hey, are you up to speed? And, and it's okay if you're not. And, and we can bring I'll bring it up next week with the what the Biden administration wants to do to the au pair program. Ooh, no. Are okay. they going to put a tax I'll, on it? No. Okay. So the au pair program is where you have uh, young people from overseas, yep. usually women, young women who come to America. They live with a family. It's part of the like, a State Department. You get a visa and you could be able to go to school and you get sort of on the path to figuring out a way if you want to be an American citizen. These are people who are often uh, become members of the family. Uh, and it's it does sound fancy because it sounds French, right? Oh, you have right. an au pair. <laughs> but it's basically like you have a nanny, you have a caretaker, whatever it is. And Which, they live in your home. So they're they're, part of your basically family. they want, there have been some abuses over time and that is not good and that has to be dealt with but in order the way that the Biden administration has proposed dealing with it is this new rule at the state department which would basically decimate the au pair program and take away more childcare opportunities from people by um Oh, it was so many absurd rules. I'm going to get it for next week and I'll I'll bring it up here because 
it sounds so elitist to say you shouldn't change the au pair program rules. But what is interesting, the reason I thought about it on the LNG front is that there were several moms who were getting together and they were Democrats mm. saying, wait, what are you doing? This is how my husband and I, who both work full time, are able to take care of our children and raise our family. Why would you do this? Fix the program and the broken parts of it, but don't decimate it. And I always wondered if the Biden administration would sort of pull that back if mm. they already are facing an unenthusiastic electorate why would you make moms who are the swing voters in suburban districts even more frustrated with your policies yeah that seems like a case of miss to completely misguided priorities too it was like the study on um the tobacco zen the other day Mm -hmm. it's the same thing it's like they're grasping at straws instead of really trying to tackle the issues but it really came from the left because the union the union wanted to get a hold of the au pair program that's what it was why i know well you know what I'm bringing something up that was I didn't have any um, information on, but it came up about we'll figure it out when, when we were in Iowa and New Hampshire. I was reading more about that and I don't have children and I don't have an au pair, but I recognize that if an election is going to be this close where you're looking at five battleground states and maybe 200,000 people really making a difference and swing voters are suburban women. Why would you do that? Mm hmm. Yeah, this honestly, it just it seems completely misguided. Like someone again got the wrong memo yeah. uh, within the Biden <laughs> well, administration. Stay tuned for my <laughs> update next week on the all pair program. I'm sure people are going to love it. All right, Jessica, quick pop quiz. It's very easy though. It, it's a, it's multiple choice, and if you don't get the answer right, we will not hold it against you because often I don't know the answer. Which president was the first to perform the Super Bowl coin toss in person? Oh man, was it Gerald Ford. Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush? I'm going to say H.W. Bush. Oh, you win. Also known as President Bush 41. In 2002, (laughs) President Bush was accompanied by former Dallas Cowboys quarterback, Roger Staubach, I hope I'm saying that correctly, at the Louisiana Superdome for the coin toss. The game was won by the New England Patriots who beat the St. Louis Rams. And there you have it. Love it. Jessica Anderson, thank you so much. Everybody can follow you where? Where do they find you? You can find me on X at Jess Anderson 2. Excellent. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.